Welcome back to Spellbound. I'm Julian Smith. I'm Andrew Rader. Today we are talking about something fun and lovely. We're going to be talking <laughs> about a brief history of war. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. People killing each other. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's such a weird thing. There's only two animals that engage in warfare. That's humans and chimpanzees. And they're kind of the same. I mean, humans in some sense are a type of chimpanzee. There was an episode of the podcast, uh, an early one with Brett Weinstein, where he talked about ants and how they would uh, attack in kind of like a form of tribalism. The Hmm. ants would... uh, Attack different colonies of ants. Is that not is that is that not the same thing as war? Well, maybe. So obviously, lots of animals engage in violence, one-on-one violence, and ants certainly have cooperative violence. But the thing is, do they plan it in advance? Uh, I think ants are sort of more reactionary. They don't like getting together, forming a plan to go out and attack other groups, right? They, they right. would maybe like react in that way. Um, it's close. Actually, that's a good example of one that, that I think is sort of borderline, but it's not exactly the same as sort of organizing a team just for the sole purpose of going out to cause destruction on your rival tribe, right? Which is what chimpanzees do. They, they do that and humans do that as well. So it's sort of warfare with ants, but it's kind of less planned, I think, which is it's less premeditated, I think, which is a necessary precondition of war, I would say. If it's just reactionary, I'm not sure it would qualify. So you're suggesting that these ants will just see other ants in their colony attacking other ants from another colony and they'll just join in randomly? Not so much randomly, but maybe it's reactionary. So they, they're reacting to ah. circumstances rather than coming together with a plan first that says, let's go out and attack, right? Got it's it. It's not as planned. Yeah. It's not thought out. It's not premeditated. It's just kind of reaction, reacting to circumstances. Like the whole colony may engage in sort of a, an attack in another colony. I guess you can call that war, but it's sort of like a, a hive kind of war in a sense because it's not sort of like a, a group of males driven by their testosterone who form this group to purposely go out and attack other groups for the purposes of reducing the strength of that group and therefore being able to steal their mates and mm-hmm. uh, food and, and that kind of thing, which is what chimps and humans basically do. If you beat the other guy, if you're in competition with them for resources, which means mates and food and other things, but primarily those two things, then you go out and you kill the males in an opposing group. That is basically war. That's how war started. It's what war somewhat still is today almost, right? Right. Uh, except it's driven so- by the national state. Is it fair to call all war a form of tribalism, or is it something more than that? It is. Well, nationalism, which is a step above the tribe, I think today you would call it probably a form of nationalism. It's but we're talking like, about like with monkeys included and all that stuff. They're not nationalists. Monkeys don't even have nations. So, would it, so monkeys are from, a- from Jim. First of all, that's very uh, r- monkey racist <laughs> of you. <laughs> I'm specious. Ape, ape racist. <laughs> ape, you ape, social justice apesist, warrior. Apesist. Uh, but <laughs> um, and, and monkeys don't actually have war, but chimp, chimpanzees do. Not bonobos, but the okay. common chimp does. Um, my bad, so my bad. What, what was the question we get? Well, I was just saying uh, the chimps don't mm. have nations, so you can't really call them nationalists for engaging in war. So wouldn't all war therefore be... Uh, a, a form of tribalism or an effective tribalism. Yeah, in, in the, yes, it is in the sense that the nation is an expansion of the tribe. Okay, yeah, that makes okay. Yeah, that 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 makes sense. Okay, so uh, we just thought it would be interesting to kind of do a little hop, skip, and a jump through our most uh, notorious wars. And Andrew, you being the history buff that you are, this should be a cakewalk for you. Uh, and just kind of looking at like what the common denominators are between all of the you know the biggest wars that we've had. And what have been the common denominators between how they've ended and um, whether or not anything good can come from war. And also uh, what other driving forces there have been behind war besides just money and expansion of territory and resources and things like that. So that what driving force of war? The uh, I actually just want to cover this quick because it, it is relevant to the to- the topic of how warfare sure. has changed, which talks about um, how uh, what the wars have been like. So Clausewitz, who wrote a famous book on war, he was a Prussian general, and Clausewitz said described war as politics by other means. So basically, a country. Mm. 
tries to achieve its ends, like achieve what it wants, achieve its goals through whatever means possible, through through politics, basically, through trade and trade embargoes and just coercion and diplomacy and uh, all kinds of things. So they try to pressure other countries to do what they want to do. When all of that breaks down, politics by other means is war. So when all of those other avenues fail, basically, that is results in war. That's at least what Clausewitz says. Interesting. That makes, now, that makes so much sense. Now, so Clausewitz was writing in the 1800s, and this was a big time of transition, because if you look at warfare today in the 20th century, and even the Civil War was really kind of the first, in a sense, or maybe the Franco-Prussian War, actually, that was later, so uh, was was really kind of the first total war, which means with civilians. So, so armies started realizing that civilians were the people who provided the food, the ammunition, the recruited group, the recruits, all the support that's necessary to keep an army in the field. So if you attack the civilians, you can undermine a country's ability to fight. And so this started in the Civil War when Sherman marched through Georgia, tearing up the railroads and torching all the farms and scorched earth, everything. And that's why the South is so mad at him, basically still today. Um, Because he marched from Atlanta to the sea and he just destroyed everything in his wake because he purposely Mm -hmm. made war on civilians for probably one of the first times in history, really, at least on a large scale. And it was his deliberate strategy. Uh, This was Sherman. And he said, war is hell, so it's better if it's short. Something to that effect. So, so basically, he wanted to destroy the Confederacy as quickly as possible by just being absolutely brutal, basically. Um, so he stole all the farmers' f- food and burned their farms and everything like that. Now, right. before that, it was very different. So in Clausewitz's time, and, and before that, really, in the 1700s, war was the sport of kings, So you would have these tiny little armies of maybe a few thousand people, which is nothing compared to modern warfare. You have like a few thousand people uh, who are supported by the king, and they just kind of go around, and they're the king's private army, and it's like a sport between the kings. Sort of a pissing contest. It's a pissing contest, but also they have rules. So you've probably seen scenes like this in the movie where they're kind of marching in formation, right, with the muskets, mm-hmm. and then they approach a certain distance, or even in Braveheart or something, uh, the, the armies are just marching. And the whatever. kings meet in the middle. And, yeah, and the commanders meet in the middle, and they talk about, hey, yeah. so what are the rules for this battle, right? And, and <laughs> you know, you can go home if you follow these rules, and that's fine. And they would, you know, really not... The, the idea, they, they would not want to involve civilians, they would not want to attack civilians or anything like that. It's a gentlemanly sport, basically. Right. Um, and, and this, you know, kind of pissed off the British during the American Revolution because the British were trying to follow these rules and they were sort of marching through the fields in red coats and, you know, they wanted to negotiate and all this kind of stuff and the Americans would hide behind trees and shoot them. <laughs> and they thought this was <laughs> very unsportsmanlike conduct to, to hide behind trees. You can't hide behind a tree. What's that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's a little deceptive, America. You're supposed to march in the middle of the field and uh, get towards your enemy and then salute them and then shoot them, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Very Interesting. contact. Well, since I've just finished your book, which is not about war, but there's a lot about war in it, uh, you know, going back a very, very long time, uh, I should add, what is your earliest favorite war? Probably the weirdest question I could leave favorite. with. Uh, well, I try not to have favorites on this subject, but... Um, <laughs> of course. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, favorite. as we said, warfare is as old as humanity, but, but it becomes organized with armies as soon as you have agriculture because you have something to defend. You have a territory to defend and you have resources to defend that can be stolen. You can right. steal the grain, you can burn the grain, you can steal the fields, you can burn the fields. So... Once you have city-states, they start competing with each other. They start raising armies to defend their territory from nomads, but also from other city-states who might wish to steal their fields. What if there's a dispute and you send your negotiators and you can't resolve whose field it is? Well, someone's feelings get hurt and then it results in war, politics by their means. Right. (laughs) So, uh Right. So, so that's, so the first, I mean, wars, you know, existed forever, but organized armies eat food, they need weapons, they need supplies, they need an infrastructure to support them, right? So the first kind of real 
armies are kind of the Egyptians, the Sumerians, the Assyrians, those kinds of people, like, like probably 6,000 years ago to, you know, 4,000 years ago. The same place we see complex society come exactly. Out. It goes right along yeah. with complex society. Yeah, and originally like they fought with you know spears, army of spears, and chariots, that kind of thing. And there was a peace treaty, the first peace treaty we have written down. So one of the first actually forms of writing between, I believe it's the Assyrians and the Egyptians, and it's huh. this peace treaty outlining what the common border would be, and they'll, they'll stop fighting. Interesting. This. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what the longest war in American history is? The Seminole War. Seminole War. How come Seminoles, I have not heard Seminole, uh, more about this war? The Seminole Indians uh, in Florida are technically, uh, the United States is still technically at war with the Seminole Indians in Florida. Still? Well, yeah, but they no longer inhabit Florida. So, yeah, they're pretty much wiped out. But they, there was never a peace treaty. So technically the United States is still engaged in the Seminole <laughs> War from the 1830s or something. That's so and absurd. Technically, the United States is still at war with North Korea because there was never a peace treaty either. Huh. Now that's there a little a more ceasefire. scary. It is, yeah. So you were saying earlier that, uh, that, that wars are politics through other means. And I'm wondering when that, I- when that idea really came about. I mean, it probably existed a long time before it was ever written down. But, you know, the idea that, that nations were representative of ideas that people would, you know, uh, manifest or live out or whatever, uh, you know, that, that seems like a pretty uh, advanced idea, a pretty modern idea. I'm sure it's somewhat old at this point, but like at what point did war become about policies through other politics through other means? And, you know, what are some examples of some wars early on that maybe were about other things and were just like, you know, it was just unruly or something like that? Yeah, like in medieval times, Wars were basically dynastic struggles. So William the Conqueror landed in England because he wanted to be king of England, and he thought he had a legitimate claim because he married someone who had uh, was related to the English monarchy. So he thought, oh, I'm just going to go take over England and make myself king. And it's not about, like, there's different... So society at those times was so class-based that mm-hmm. monarchs had way more in common with each other than they did with their own subjects, right? And the subjects were just mm-hmm. kind of the masses. And so it was this contest mm-hmm. and it was just this kind of dynastic struggle, like, who's going to be the king? You know? And so they would have these relatively small armies that would just meet and kind of decided in this Contest and and literally sometimes they would uh, just go out and have champions fight right and that's how they would decide the battle. It was just this kind of contest to see who's going to be king. That's a lot right. of kind of medieval warfare. So it's not based on these ideas of nations. That concept of a nation is really new, as we said right. on an earlier episode. You know, the concept of the nation is kind of like I mean, to some extent, culture. There was this concept, but even if you look at like ancient Greece or something, they were all different city states. So they didn't really have a concept of a nation. They maybe had like core Greek beliefs, but and or shared religion or shared culture, but it wasn't really a nation in that sense. And the Nations are new. Like the idea of a nation is um, one of the first ones was almost the United States, really, that that kind mm-hmm. of set itself up with these ideas that are actually written down, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. So that, that kind so of is whole thing a is a new concept. There is a difference. Is, it, there, is um, there a difference between like modern wars that we have today and like the ancient wars that you read about from like a long, long time ago? Well, yeah. So the main difference is today, at least in the 20th century, actually today it's almost sort of reverted because all the wars you have today are really small ones, right? So they're kind of far off countries with dictators and with maybe struggles for power, right? In Africa or in the Middle East and stuff like that. So the the... The question is whether big industrial war has disappeared, and we kind of hope so. And and what ha- would have caused that is nuclear weapons, because now it's literally too dangerous to fight a war. <laughs> so so yeah. modern nations really can't afford to fight a war. They, they can't afford to be unprepared if they're kind of a big uh, modern nation as well. But uh, the question is whether war has basically disappeared. Because, yeah, war in the 20th century was absolutely brutal, and it was total war. It was... All the civilians, all the economy, everything. Like the United States produced zero cars in 1943. Zero. Wow, really? Every factory in Detroit was reconfigured to produce tanks and trucks for the army and planes and everything, right? The United States produced 
I think it's 350,000 airplanes during the Second World War. Wow. Yeah. That is insane. I did yeah. not know that. Yeah, it's really so. Every like, it was like all hands on oh, deck. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, they produced the the United States built probably a hundred major warships, like giant giant warships. Oh, it's, everything. The whole economy Crazy. was geared towards producing weapons for war, and that started in the Civil War. That was the first really kind of modern war where all the civilians were involved. Well, actually, I mean, it really started in the French Revolution, French Revolutionary Wars. This was the first. They, the French had this levee en masse. So what happened, and, and it's because of the national ideas. So, so to some extent, it almost goes back to the American Revolution. But the American Revolution was a super, super small-scale war with the battles were maybe like 1,000, 2,000 soldiers on each side, right? Whereas the Civil War was mm. 10 times that, more than 10 times that. It was probably 30 times that, right? Wow. And it was, it was very, very, very common for more soldiers to be killed in a single Civil War battle than were killed in the entire Revolutionary War. Wow. Uh, and yet more Americans died in the Civil War than any other war, oh, than all the other wars put together, actually, all the war, other American wars put Gosh, together. That's so um, sad. Partly because it's Americans on both sides, right? So both sides yeah, of the equation, yeah. right? Um, yeah. Not to mention so, the, 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 the Civil War was much more a, you know, class-based war than the American Revolution, the, the Revolutionary War was. So, you know, it's like you could, it, maybe, maybe it was that way because, you know, <laughs> You had like slavery was the central issue of the Civil War, and you had all these people that were their whole lives were propped up on having this like free help all the time, you know, and like I don't know. Yeah, it's was, it was mainly because of industrialization. So between mm. the American Revolution and the Civil War, what had happened was there was the steam engine and there was railways. And now you could transport vast quantities of troops and supplies all over the country really quickly within a day or two. You could travel from Massachusetts to the battlefield within two days on a train, whereas before it would be mm -hmm. months, right? And, and you had right. steamships that would sail down the river, down the Mississippi, and bring vast quantities of, quantities of supplies and cannons. And, and the factories could produce vast, like millions of firearms, right? Right before it was, they were just built in a shop individually, and it probably took you a month to build a, a musket, and they were crappy. Uh, but in the Civil War, they were effective weapons. It was the first time they had really rifled, rifled weapons. So rifle means um, there's a curvature in the barrel, and so it spins the bullet, which means it goes much further. It goes about ten times as far accurately. Uh -huh. So at the start of the Civil War, they're all kind of marching in formation like the old style combat, but. What they didn't realize or what they failed to account for in their tactics was that the guns had totally changed and the guns were now 10 times as effective as they were during the revolution. So they got shot right. from a mile away, right? Wow. I mean, so, so they just got mowed down. Um, it was yeah. just dramatically different. And it, so that, I mean, total war because all the civilians are now producing weapons for the and producing food and producing all this stuff. It's just about production, about... Um, yeah, industrialization. So that that's really why but, it's different. But we're talking. But you, I'm I'm talking not so much about the amount of deaths, but the amount of people. I mean, you said that there were more people in the Civil War uh, on both sides. You'd have like ten times the amount of people yeah. just fighting. You know, not because even dying. Because you can supply larger armies. That's the reason. Because that you can too, now. Yeah. Now you have the infrastructure, the railroads, the supply movement capability uh, to to so supply and transport large armies. War always comes so down to logistics. Like so you don't think supplies. that so you don't think there's any uh, good argument for the civil war just being a more uh, demanding war because it was such a polarizing subject and people and the people who wanted it were you think it was all just technology you, you probably think that every, to the same extent as the revolution actually maybe a little bit more the breakup of the union which was the original goal and then eventually slavery as the goal um, sort of but. It is true that during the revolution, about a third of the population of the of the United States favored independence, favored separation, a third uh, favored staying with Britain, and a third didn't really care. Um, mm -hmm. So it, the, the public sentiment was a lot more mixed during the revolution. But uh, now it was almost entirely during uh, related to industrialization because that it wasn't just those two; it was all wars. All wars changed to this degree, and it started with the French Revolution, actually. Uh, because what happened was, so as I said, before war was kind of this uh, contest between kings and the, the commanders would go out and negotiate what the rules were and they were very small armies, a couple thousand. And 
this, this, this was the pattern. And during the 1700s, during the 18th century, the time of the American Revolution, but also a number of other wars in Europe, there was basically no decisive battles. No army was ever really wiped out. It was kind of they were just beaten a little bit and then, oh, let's negotiate. And it's just the kings or whatever trying to like figure <laughs> out what out. the And they out. would maybe cede a little t- <laughs> territory. Yeah, time out, basically. Kind of that kind of thing, right? And it was gentlemanly, basically, although war always is hell, but but to the extent that it could be, it was gentlemanly. Um and, and it, you know, it completely shifted in the French Revolution because what happened was uh, they had these ideas of liberty and equality and fraternity. Literally, that's their motto. <laughs> and, right. And, and they threw out their king. And they executed their king. And what happened was all the monarchs of, of Europe, all the kings of Europe said, WTF, these guys just killed their king. Right. And they declared war immediately on France, and every army in Europe basically marched to suppress the French Revolution and restore who is actually their relative, the Bourbon King, right? So, so they wanted to restore the old order because what they were worried about was the revolution can happen to them too. So they were worried that if the French can overthrow their king, kill their king, we could be out of a job too. We could Our, our subjects right. could rise up. Because there's much, as I said before, the monarchs are all friends. The masses are below them. They don't communicate. Mm-hmm. Like the, the monarchs have way more in common with each other than they do with their subjects. Right. So it's, it's, why, huge, it's the same reason celebrities marry celebrities. So it's, I guess. So it's a huge <laughs> threat to everyone, to all the kings in Europe as soon as the French Revolution happens because now the, the masses could be getting for them. So every army in Europe marches to attack France and, and put down the revolution. The French say, okay, well, we have a big population. We have now no king to worry about. Um, we have a committee that can make decisions or whatever. And they said, Levé on that. They said, every, it's literally in the French um, national anthem, which is still today. They said, every man is a soldier. Every woman can make clothes and food and, and uniforms and guns to supply the soldiers. And all the children can like work in the factories to, to like make stuff <laughs> for war. They said, the entire country is now at war. Everyone is oh my involved gosh. in this, right? And this is the first time. Before, was thousand, before the, the armies were a few thousand, like really tiny. The French yeah. raised an army of basically a million, and they were poorly trained and poorly led and all this, but they utterly destroyed all their enemies because they just really? out, out, outnumbered them 10 to 1. So the, the, right. like the old Prussian army came in and the Austrian army came in to attack France, and they said, okay, well, we have like 100,000 soldiers. How many do you have? You have 100? Okay, great, you're dead. So they just, and then yeah. they, and, the, and the French, this was for them an international struggle that they wanted to take down all the monarchies and make the whole world... Uh, pseudo-democracy, although sort of also dictatorship of the masses and, and of the the cadres or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so they basically took over all of Europe and tried yeah. to get rid of all the kings. And Napoleon came in and he eventually inherited this and, and Napoleon conquered pretty much all of Europe until he uh, invaded Russia in the winter and his army died. But this was the first time where armies were numbering in the hundreds of thousands and the French had surely uh, maybe one or two million soldiers, right? And it's, it's, it's a yeah. factor of a thousand increase. And then they developed all these technologies to supply and support these massive armies on the battlefield that they'd never done before. This is when canning, food canning was invented. Is invented to mm. supply armies in the battlefield so they could preserve food and send it on long marches. Because before, what happened was they didn't even supply soldiers with food. They said, go find it. And the soldiers would forage, which means they steal food from the farmers along their way. So they're marching through the huh. fields, they're marching through the villages, and they just take what food they want. And they say, we have guns, we're going to take your food. Like, sorry. <laughs> are you familiar? Are, this, this, this is a rabbit trail, but are you familiar with the idea that uh, the, the word can, like a can of food, is is uh etymologically it's like saying you can eat berries in winter oh really yeah you ever heard that that's where they the origin of the word or it just happens to be coincidence it's like it's like it's like it's like you can 
Like oh, you can interesting. Do it. Yeah, I did not yeah. know that. Yeah, yeah, it's like interesting. Yeah, it's like you could. I mean, English has obviously changed so much in the last yeah, thousand yeah, years, yeah. but like you can imagine when that, uh, how that would make sense back then. Yeah. Like when in, the, totally. in these times you're talking about, it's a long time ago, you know. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, and so the British and French actually independently invented canning, so it was invented by both sides. Huh. And the can opener wasn't invented for another fifty years. And you can open it <laughs> with a can opener. So they would they would just open these kids with hammer and chisel. <laughs> Not a can opener. Uh, so is this another way that uh, that war might have come full circle uh, today to where to the way it used to be? You, you said earlier that in back in the day it was really class based, and the monarchs all had more in common with each other than mm-hmm. their masses did. And you know, I can't I can't help but like think about today and like I mean you look at, on the news and you see Trump like being buddy buddy with Putin and Kim Jong Un and it's just like well maybe that's what we're seeing and is that you know I just I don't know I don't know exactly what I'm asking but I'm just I'm just noticing that pattern yeah I sort of I know what you're poking at I don't really think so what what I mean by it's kind of gone full circle is that so wars became so industrialized following this trend that started with really the French Revolution and then the American Civil War was kind of the first modern war in a sense where all the civilians were at war and they started you know, even having like trench warfare, had effective firearms for the first time, they had artillery for the first time. Like the Civil War, um, actually I think it was even World War One. I, I think more people died in the Civil War from disease. So World War One was the first huh. war, I think, where um, more soldiers were killed by enemy action than by disease because before it's just mm. they would just die from disease along the way and stuff like that and the battles weren't wow. particularly bloody although they were very bloody in the Civil War but also lots of people died from disease so I think it was maybe more disease but um, yeah huh. so so wars became so industrialized like obviously the First World War was kind of these factories producing tanks and producing artillery and producing shells and producing airplanes and producing ships and the that armies were just kind of cannon fodder. They were ground to pieces in these, and you couldn't, the weapons were so deadly. The artillery, yeah. in particular, the artillery. Like, uh, artillery has been the biggest killer in World War One, World War Two. People don't really think about it so much, but it's these shells coming over and exploding, right? And that's mm-hmm. what killed most of the soldiers in World War One and, and World War Two as well. Um, not so much, like, fi- firearms, not so much guns, right? Um, the other thing is, like, if you just do the math, most soldiers don't kill anyone because you have approximately equal soldiers on the other side. And m- first of all, most soldiers survive, so only like 30% die, something like that. And then second, the biggest killer is artillery, so you take them out of the equation. So maybe 5 to 10% are killed by enemy, like, direct fire. That means I see. only 5 yeah. to 10 And then you add... The people, who, the soldiers who do kill people with guns tend to be snipers and tend to be ones who kill a lot of people. So what that mm-hmm. implies is a, a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of soldiers actually ended up shooting anyone at all. Right. <laughs> Which is really funny. Okay, so you it gave is. an example. It's strange a little bit. It's not what you would It think. is kind of strange, yeah. yeah. Mm. You gave an example earlier about a king, uh, King Henry, I think you said it was, that tried to cl- claim ownership of an entire city just because he married someone. What's like another, before we get into the modern worlds, the, the, I want to eventually get to the world wars mm. and um, some of the more modern wars. I think you said the Cold War already, earlier. That would be good too. Yeah. But what's like, an, what's another reason or maybe another famous war from old times that uh, either had like a really silly backdrop, a reason for happening or just, uh, you know, something, some kind of war that would be very different from a war that we'd see today, but one that's notable. Well, so that was William the Conqueror who conquered England, and because of he okay. because he did that, he had this tie to the the French throne as well. And so, hilariously, until quite recently, a few hundred years ago at most, England claimed all of France. So, like Henry the Eighth and Henry the Fifth, and all these people, all these kings of their official title was King of England in France even though they controlled huh. basically no French territory at all. They said, <laughs> I'm the king of England and I'm the king of France. That other king who's in France, he's fake. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. This is actually one of the most interesting uh, inconsistencies that I that you see in the Bible in the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, there's certain yeah. there's certain books that will say that, uh, that Moses is an only child, and then there's other contributions oh, that yeah. say that Moses has a younger brother named Aaron, who's yeah. a high priest, in Midian, yeah, yeah. and it's and you, it, 
Moses actually didn't have a brother, Aaron's tribe upgraded him to be Moses's brother. There's actually a pot, an episode on the podcast about this from early on. Yeah. Uh, but he has, it's like the same exact thing. Like Aaron has yeah. no connection to Moses, but he's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, the, I'm his brother. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We're coming right back. I promise. Probably the silliest war in history is the soccer war, which was in the 1970s between El Salvador and Guatemala. Uh, they actually, a soccer match uh, caused a war because the fans were too upset. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Insane. That's the dumbest reason for a war right there. Yeah, maybe. But uh, yeah, anyway. Um so yeah, so so war became so industrialized, obviously with World War One and then World War II even more so. It's just about factories, bombing factories. You're, and then the thing is, factories are in neighborhoods and they're crewed mm-hmm. by civilians. So this mm-hmm. is the first time where really your goal is to kill as many civilians as possible on the other mm-hmm. side. So you're just sending mass bombers over cities. Well, I guess just, this is where... Blowing this up is, cities, this, burning cities. Yeah. Is this why you say that uh, is this why you said earlier that that we're now at a point where war is becoming uh, where we're having to kind of rethink it, like with nukes and things like that? Specifically, you said that, but yeah, we're is it also to, just yeah. is it also just totally. because of the industrial revolution in general? Well, the industrial revolution began the cycle that culminated in the mass firebombing of cities, which is right. in World War II because you couldn't before. One, well, you couldn't, yeah. But, but right. in World War II, suddenly you can build thousands of bombers carrying thousands of pounds mm-hmm. of explosives that you can drop over cities, right? right? And, and cities are basically where factories are, where, where things are being produced, but they're also like the people whose goal it is to continue fighting you. And, and the idea was maybe you could break the morale of the people by bombing their cities. They're going to stop fighting because they're going to give up. But in reality, what always happened is it just pisses them off. So it makes them more, <laughs> more mad and more willing to fight. It's, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's basically has never been effective, this, this theory that you bomb civilians and they're going to give up. What happens is they just become more determined. Uh, mm-hmm. even though they're living in these ruins of cities. So in World War II, you had obviously the bombing of, of London and, and uh, uh, England by the Germans in the, uh, the Battle of Britain. But then the Allies revisited that on Germany probably 20 or 30-fold. So every city in Germany was basically reduced to ashes in World War II, and right. even more so in Japan. And that was before the atomic bombs. Uh, in fact, very few... Compared to the atomic bombs, vastly more people were killed in firebombing raids on Tokyo. So the atomic bombs were not the most destructive bombing raids in World War II by a long shot. Um, now, the difference is, obviously, that was in, the damage was inflicted by a single weapon, which is pretty damn scary. And mm-hmm. the other thing is nuclear weapons nowadays are thousands of times more powerful than the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, a, nucle- a modern nuclear weapon is just a dreadful, terrible thing. Like, it's, it's just no sane person could ever contemplate using it, mm-hmm. which is why war is basically impossible. I mean, assuming, assuming rational, rationality, which is not necessarily a good assumption with humans, so, because not all humans are rational and not all... Um, under all circumstances. Not all rationals and, are humans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so is war now outdated? I mean, this is the nature of the Cold War. So what happened, like a lot of the Americans, Patton, for example, one of the American generals, after World War II, they said, okay, let's just keep going and mm-hmm. f- fight the Russians, right? Um, right. Because now, now we've taken out the Germans, let's just keep fighting the Russians now. Who, who are their allies, Right. And they're like, oh, and a lot of Russians too, because there's this big, because it became so powerful. The Soviet Union was this big power block, and then the United States and its allies were this other big power block, and they're kind of looking at each other, oh, is there going to be a fight sometime? I mean, we have different Mm -hmm. ideologies, we have different uh, views about the world, so is this necessarily going to result in a fight? And then the thing is, you become trapped in this contest. So what happens is, you think maybe eventually there'll be a fight. I don't see a particular reason for it, but maybe eventually we're going to fight. Therefore, assuming there is going to be a fight, let's start with the premise that there is going to be a fight. We need to make sure that the fight is at the right time for us. 
Mm-hmm. Therefore, we need to start a war at the right time. Right. And that's the danger, right? So that's with the Cold War, there's certain, the power sort of ebbs and flows and the advantage sort of ebbs and flows. And then there's this danger that one side will perceive that, okay, right now we have the advantage, but 10 years from now, we're not. So let, if, we're, if there's going to be a war, which just start with that assumption, let's attack now. Right. And that's, that's the big trick. That's exactly what happened with Japan in World War II. Well, this is actually, this is where I wanted to go next. So I'm, I'm glad to see that your head's already there, which is that, you know, you have so many people that say that, that recent wars are all just about money. And, you know, there's no, there's no denying that, that obviously like there's more media spending and things like that. And there's more ads sold when, you know, when we're at war because people are just looking up stuff constantly trying to get updates, you know? So it's, so the, the war, it's definitely a moneymaker. You know, whenever there's a war, at least media spends go up. At least, you know, uh, people, you're, yeah. you're grimacing, but it's well, true. You're grimacing, well, but it's it true. It is true, but that couldn't possibly be the reason. The, 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 the one connection with money potentially Well, is, yeah, so I, I don't, I'm not pits, saying it is the reason. a lot of money. But, but so, so as a nation, you would never go to war to try to gain more money. You end up spending far, far more than you right. ever get. This is, this is what I wanted to hear you say. Lay it on me. <laughs> oh, I mean, there's, that's completely nonsensical. It makes no sense whatsoever. There was a time in history where it actually could make sense, where you could seize to enemy territory. So basically back in the Middle Ages, or even in the 1700s maybe, you could go to war to seize territory. And it actually would mm-hmm. enhance your nation. Um, so... And eventually, it would you know benefit. It would be some benefit to your nation, and you could also force the opponent to pay you money, called reparations. So basically, you beat a country in a war, and you could say, okay, you're defeated, and now you have to pay us money. So, mm-hmm. I mean, in the past, maybe it was within modern industrial war, you are basically guaranteed never to come at, come out ahead in financial terms, never. I mean, because nowadays people don't really annex territories anymore. Uh, it's considered uh, impolite. <laughs> uh, it's considered basically against inter- international law. This is why, like, when Saddam seized Kuwait, I mean, that's pretty much illegal. You can't do that. So they organized a coalition to push him out, right? Because you can't just, like, uh, take over countries right. nowadays. And you right. definitely spend way, 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 way more on on all the modern industrial weapons and stuff than you would ever What do you mean you can't just take over a country? I mean, if China, I'm saying hypothetically here, if China were to come in and like nuke us and like, and, and just came to the remaining people that were left and were like, okay, you're now China. What, what do you mean you can't just do that? Well, okay. So that scenario wouldn't work very well, but so China, it's interesting because China sort of did do that in the 1950s with Tibet, but you can't really kind of take over a modern, so what would happen? I mean, first of all, China has a very small nuclear arsenal. They'd never have the capability. They have no ability to project power across the Pacific Ocean. They couldn't, I mean, that is just a completely, basically impossible scenario. But, uh, and it would turn into kind of like Vietnam, right? Like, all the the Wolverines in this movie Red Dawn, where the Soviets try to invade America, they do, I guess, and the Cubans and stuff like that. And and this high school, Emilio Estevez organizes these high school students to form a militia <laughs> and fight back. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was the 1980s. Emilio movie. Estevez. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I mean, love that guy. Yeah. It's not going to happen, and there's no advantage. Like, they're going to spend way more money doing it from f- financial terms. Plus, the United States is very important to China as their biggest market. Of course, goods. this is the best reason. There, there's yeah. no, so, okay, so are you, so there's a couple We're of We're in a codependent things. relationship. So, so the money relation, <laughs> there is a money relationship, but it's not like you're going to go to war to, to get money. So one possible money relationship is the uh, military industrial complex. So this is what Eisenhower was talking about in the 1950s after he uh, left from the presidency he, he uh, at the end of his term. He warned that like spending on the military is sort of self-perpetuating because you have all these companies and all these political interests invested in funding these military companies, Lockheed Martin and whatever, all these companies that make weapons. And, the you know... Yeah, war makes money for some people. It makes money for those companies. It doesn't make money for mm-hmm. the country, but it, it certainly enriches certain companies, right? Like Elon yeah. Musk said, uh, you could one of the dangers of AI is you could have an AI that says is told to just maximize profits, right? And what it could right, do right. 
is buy a bunch of defense stocks and short consumer stocks and then start a war. And it makes tons of money mm-hmm. because now, yeah. now the country's buying these weapons. Because it's, it's just right? referencing some spreadsheet so it makes of money profitable for, endeavors. It makes money for <laughs> companies that produce weapons. That is true. Yeah. Uh, but, it, yeah. but overall, it's a huge money suck from the country because they're buying all these weapons, right? So there is right. that. And, and the question is, if you have all these weapons being produced and you have this giant military, there's this like th- thought like, well, why aren't, what are we doing with it? Like, why aren't we using it? I mean, Trump, this is one of the dangerous things that Trump says all the time. He says, well, what's the point of having nuclear weapons if you're not going to use them? That is uh-huh. like the most dangerous thing he's probably ever said. But, um, you know, it's to some extent, there's some validity in that. Like, what is the point of having? But you can do, you can answer that two ways. You can, well, and, you know. well, nuclear weapons in particular, the only purpose is as a deterrent, basically, which is sort of a self, it's a very strange concept that, yeah, the purpose is, the purpose of having them is to not have to have them, <laughs> basically. Right. But it, it's sort of true. But um, yeah. So, but but the United States benefits from the military in a number of ways around the world in that it can get kind of get what it wants. It can sanction people it doesn't like. It kind of uses it to protect the seas, which is a big U.S. policy almost forever. Um, it's been all about free trade around the world, and so it makes sure that people follow the rules. But it's like the international police force, basically, which a lot mm-hmm. of people object to, but that is basically how the U.S. military is, is used. Uh Oh, we're talking about connection with money, though, right? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, you know, I just wanted some. Money? Yeah. I just, I just wanted some examples of 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 reasons other than money that recent wars have well, have uh, been about, and and I I know that am I am I wrong that the first world war started with the assassination of someone, right? That was like the first trigger. Of oh, it, that's yeah. what started that the World War One, right? Well, so that reminds me of what I, what I want to say, which which the other connection with money is people say that because the globe, global trade is so interconnected, you can never have a war today. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you can never have a war between China and the United States because it would wreck both their economies because they're so interdependent on each other, right? Um, mm-hmm. eh, maybe, maybe that has some truth to it, but this is exactly the argument that a famous author made in, I think it was like 1913, it was right before the First World War, he said, the global economy today is so interconnected that major powers could never go to war because it would result in the collapse of all their economies. Hmm. The next year, they were all at war. (laughs) So, Hmm. not true, because people are irrational. So, from a rational standpoint, yeah, was it stupid to go to war in World War I? Fuck, yeah, it was stupid. But people did Mm -hmm. it anyway. And the reason World War I happened was exactly what I was talking about earlier with the timing thing. So what happened was Germany thought it had a relative advantage over everyone, particularly Russia, because Russia was industrializing, Russia was building its railroads, and Germany basically said, well, okay, so there's been, there hasn't been a war in 50 years in Europe. We all know there's going to be another war. Germany's competitors are France, Russia... Britain. So, look at look at Russia. Russia is Russia is becoming stronger by the day. Germany is strong. Germany is the strongest right now, but in 10, 20 years, Russia is going to be stronger than us. So, there's going to be a war. Everyone knows there's going to be a war. We want to make sure we have this war now. That's what basically caused the First World War. So, what happened was the Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo. And then Germany basically issued what it called what's called the blank check. So it said to Austria-Hungary, which was its ally, it said, "Make whatever demands you want from Serbia, make them as ridiculous as possible. We're going to back you up no matter what. We've got your back no matter what." Because Germany kind of wanted a war. Because Germany said, mm-hmm. "Well, uh, let's try to see if we can provoke something here." I mean, Germany said basically, "We don't want a war, but we know there's going to be one." Therefore, we have to win it, and therefore it has to be now. So, fuck, we better have a war. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. So, why Why would... Uh, I'm just trying to figure out why they would have a reason to think that war was inevitable. Well, then. I think it's, it's because it's the natural pattern of humanity. They, they're, throughout history, and throughout, in particular Europe, there was just this, on, this constant sequence of conflicts, of wars. I mean... 
Germany had the, the previous war in Europe. It was basically the Franco-Prussian War between France and Germany. And Germany stole a bunch of territory from France, Alsace-Lorraine. So they knew the French were angry. They knew the French wanted to take them back. They knew that Germany was trying to become an international powerhouse of economic power. It was trying to take colonies, all this stuff. It was trying to become, and that natural kind, naturally kind of results in competition. And, and they thought, well, you know, there's this kind of natural nationalism, antagonism kind of. Uh, so, and they kind of thought war was inevitable and, and actually probably was at some point, right? Uh, humanity at the time and possibly today, it's hard to say. Um, it was just sort of the natural pattern of things. There'd always been constant wars in Europe. And so there probably was going to be one. And it was pretty obvious to everyone whose side people were going to be on because there was a system of alliances. So what happened mm -hmm. was that calculus that Germany made was basically the caused the First World War. But then what sucked in all the other countries was the system of alliances because Germany didn't want to fight France and Russia at the same time. That'd be stupid. But Russia and France knew that, yeah, well, if we're going to fight Germany, we want to have both of us. So if you attack one of us, we're both going to fight because it's just in their best interest. Countries work in their own best interest, in their own interest. So, I mean, it was just kind of a natural series of dominoes that fell into place. Right. Well, I want, what do you think about the idea? What do you think about the idea that, uh, that there's more of an awareness of tribalism today than there used to be? Mm -hmm. And I think, I think a lot of, I think because of the way technology in the, has gone in the last, you know, couple decades with the internet and access to information and, uh, insight into other people's cultures. And you can kind of like, Look at you can kind of for the first time ever. It's so much easier to to look around the world and and observe, you know. So, I guess we can we can hope that uh, that maybe that idea spreads throughout the world and that there won't be a need for a World War Three. I mean, what do you think about this idea? Yeah, I'm hopeful. I mean, so I think because at some point you say we're we're all mammals and our yeah. and, and and you know we don't have to just dominate each other. You know we, we maybe maybe we're best uh, you know considering everybody's competitive advantage, just like we do economically, and you know uh, work together somehow. A little bit, a little bit. I mean, so I'm sounding like Miss America now. So yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I, I think that's a little naive, but there's something there's some truth to it. So I think that well, why so is it naive though? Humans at if their it's in core, our brain chemistry. Humans are at the core the same as they've always been. So they have the same natural aggressiveness. They have the same irrationality that can lead to decisions that lead to confl conflagrations. Conflagrations. They have. Uh, you know, this nationalism, they still have tribes and all that. So they still, so all the kind of prerequisites and conditions for war are still there. So it is dangerous. But, but we're more aware than ever. Yeah, there's two factors. One is a carrot and one is a stick. So I think you're right. We are more aware than ever. We're more globalized. We're more understanding of other people. I think there is kind of a cultural and just mental shift. It doesn't change our nature, but it does help us grapple with these questions a little better. So I think that there is some hope in that, that humans are becoming more enlightened, not in their base nature, but at least in their uh, top level culture and, and, and understanding. I think there is definitely capacity some hope in to that. understand. Yeah, capacity to understand. I think that is true. There's a lot more knowledge out there. We understand, like racism, for example, is in rapid decline. So still exists, right. but but it's not nearly as. I mean, Abraham Lincoln was racist, and he's considered like one of the you know. Uh, yeah. but but it's just the sign of the times, right? Like morality changes right. over time; it evolves, and and we are becoming, I think, more moral just through this natural evolution of of morality. So that's one thing. That's the carrot. The stick is that war is just so dangerous now. It's basically a world war would result yeah. in the utter destruction of the entire planet. Um, so that's obviously a scary prospect that should be avoided at all costs. So there, there's, so those two twin factors do give me hope. They, so obviously that doesn't prevent sort of small local wars, which still happen, like in Syria, for example, in, in Yemen, things like that in Afghanistan, like, you know, sort of local tribal conflicts and civil wars and that sort of thing it still happens for sure. Uh, the other thing is 
how long can before, we be before sure? Before you go there, yeah. can I say something on that yeah, point? Because yeah, it's yeah. interesting. You draw you draw an interesting picture there because it's you're talking. You're basically saying we have oh, throughout time with technology, we've created the most dangerous things ever, and we could just destroy yeah. everything. Right. But you're also saying on the same timeline, on a parallel trajectory. Yeah. We've become, we've gone from super unaware humans to very aware, arguably enlightened by ancient standards, humans. Yeah, you know, so absolutely, yeah. So it's so very it's interesting. interesting. Yeah, like, yeah, we have the same. We've tool. become more aware and more dangerous at the same time, and it's like, well, what are we going to do with it? It's an interesting intersection we have now. Absolutely, it's basically technological advancement is a blessing and a curse at the same time, and yeah. it's it's just a tool, and you can do what you want with it. It's a tool that you be used yeah. how you wish. Now, the thing is, though, the, the question is, how long can we go without a major mistake? So as long as nuclear mm. weapons exist in the world, there's always this chance that there's a crazy person, there's a, just a terrible rogue regime, there's uh, accidents, there's misunderstandings, there's all this stuff that could go wrong. And it's hard to say that we'll never have a big mistake like that because... The world is basically living with a gun pointed at its head. And yeah, we have the morality to say, well, we probably don't want to pull the trigger. And but we, we probably don't want to pull the trigger. But it's hard to say that we never will. I mean, it just takes mm -hmm. one major foul up to kind of destroy everything. Yeah. It would and take on a that pretty happy, stupid you know? person. <laughs> It would take it would take a pretty stupid person, well, in my opinion, to so, set off a nuke that's going to destroy everything. Well, okay, so here here's here's like the scenarios, right? So Kim Jong Un in, in North Korea, uh, it's not in his interest to use nuclear weapons because he's in power. Yeah. If he used nuclear weapons, his country would be destroyed. He'd absolutely be killed, no question whatsoever. Uh, the United States would definitely like unleash wrath on him, right? Uh, but he is not a rational guy. And let's say he's suicidal one day. Let's say he's going to be removed from power by his own people and the mob is storming the palace. What's he going to do? Is he, I mean, if he knows he's going to die and doesn't care about life anymore, is he going to launch some nukes? Who knows? All right. Um, now, yeah. now that wouldn't necessarily result in, it would not probably result in, in sort of a global conflict because we're talking about like one rogue guy or something like that. That's beyond but, irrational, right? That's well, beyond yeah, irrational. Yeah, but people are beyond irrational. Like humans are not very trustworthy at all times and all places, right? You can't permanently trust someone to do the right thing, right? So, yeah, so that that's a danger of kind of a rogue thing. But the other yeah, you're talking is, about mass shootings and things like that, you know? Yeah, well, right, exactly. People mass shoot. So, see, the per, the 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 person that, or terrorism, a terrorist gets a nuclear bomb, right? Are they going to mm -hmm. say, "Oh no, I can't do this. This is too too big"? No, their now, see, goal that's, is to that's a scarier prospect right. is the idea of a terrorist getting. Well, a I mean, it's, you know. right? So, so these are the dangers. Now, none of these these scenarios, although destructive, very destructive, are but Kim Jong Un is not a terrorist. No, I mean not exactly, but but he could adopt the mentality under certain circumstances, right? Of, of self destructiveness, yeah. right? Um, so. The real danger for sort of the destruction of all of humanity is escalation. So let's say you have, let's say you have escalation. Like Russia. You see, Russia decides, Putin decides to invade the Baltic states or something like that. Or, you know, this stuff going on in Ukraine, Putin decides to overrun all of Ukraine. Ukraine's an American ally, so America decides to intervene. America sends tanks and helicopters and planes to try to stop the Russian army. The Russian army fights back. The Americans uh, beat the Russian army, and the Russian army retreats towards Moscow. The Americans want to end the war, so they push towards Moscow. Well, what did Russia do at that point? Did they use nuclear weapons? I don't know. But that's the danger. They have them, so they say, they probably don't. It's questionable, though, right? They say we have these nuclear weapons. This is a threat. So they back have off. the most, right? Russia has the most. Uh, I think eh, it's questionable. I can't. There isn't answer to your question, but I can't remember if it's the United States. Somebody or has ninety percent yeah. of the nukes. I know that. Uh, I think Russia and the United States have sort of similar numbers, but yeah, definitely one has more. I can't remember which one though. But I do know that North Dakota, if it was an independent country, would be the third largest nuclear power. Ah, oh, interesting. Okay, so <laughs> North Korea has the ninth amount 
of nukes. I'm looking at the list here. Uh, Russia has the most nukes. Yeah. Let's yeah. see how it's not surprising. Let's see yeah, how, but, yeah. Uh, but it's not like 90%. I think it's I think it's like three to two or something over the United States or something. But I, but the American ones are more reliable and better. So I think that's why the United States doesn't really care. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's not a... I mean, the thing is, the in the amounts that we're talking about with Russia and the United States, they're already enough to destroy basically every city on Earth. So what difference does it make how many more you have, right? Mm-hmm. It's so crazy that Russia has the most nukes considering Chernobyl. You'd think they'd want no more nukes. You'd think they'd be, like, offloading them. Yeah, well... I don't know. Humans aren't always rational. That's true. This is what you. This is what they say. This is what I hear. Um, okay, so... So, World War I... Uh, we should just put a cap on this, but, you know, it seems like... Uh, World War I started with an assassination, right? Isn't that how it started? Yeah, but that was just the spark that lit the powder keg, as they say. Right. It, it wasn't right. the war was in no way about the assassination. That was just the trigger right. that started the that hit the first domino. Yeah, but that's that assassination is arguably an act of war. So that's why it started a much bigger one. You know, you're yeah, it, it it is. It was by a terrorist organization called the Black Hand. So it was questionably mm-hmm. now the idea is. Uh, the, the Black Hand, the terrorist organization, was probably supported by Serbia. It was supported by the Serbian military, so they had a hand in it. So it was sort of at least nominally a national act on the, the on account of Serbia. The interesting thing is most of the allies, like the British, didn't want anything to do with Serbia. They thought mm-hmm. the, the quote in the London Times right before the First World War for Serbia getting them into this mess. And remember, the British are the allies of Serbia in this war. They say, if it were possible to tow the, the entire nation of Serbia out to sea and sink it there, the air of Europe would seem immediately all that fresher or something like that. Wow. <laughs> but that's a lot different than... that's World War One and World War Two started a lot differently. I mean, World War Two is like, it's an invasion and there's all this like, you know... Uh, super tribalistic stuff going on. You'd think that there would be some similarity in the way that both of these world, the only two world wars we've ever had, have started. Yeah, there's actually a third world war uh, that should be the first, and then the second should be the third, and the first should be the second, uh, which huh. is really the Seven Years War because it was a oh, global yeah. war across all the this. world's land and seas, basically around the entire world. Yeah, interesting. Well, I think we've talked enough about uh, war for one day. What do you think? May it never, may it never come again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I thought this would be an interesting episode because there's so much talk of this third world war right now, uh, and it sounds like you're actually saying this would be, technically be the fourth. Is that your argument? Uh, I'm really hoping there isn't one. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, no, I am too. But I'm saying. Well, I don't you, even know this- under what condition. Like it. The, it seems to me that there's not even the right conditions because who are you fighting like Russia? I mean, Russia from a nuclear perspective is a very powerful country as we just discussed, but from an actual uh, economic perspective, which is really the basis of the military, it's a weak country. Yeah. I think the new, the new war is arguably, uh, the new war seems like more realistically uh, corporatiz- corporatization. Yeah, well, like yeah, big... like so, so, so. I don't think there's a global war in the future, but there is sort of this global competition in the future between China mm-hmm. and the United States, which is an economic competition. It's competition for resources in Africa, and it's competition for business opportunities, and it's competition. It's like another Cold War. It's very possible there would be another sort of Cold War, but it's. I think it's unlikely that that would be an all-out shooting shooting match. Yeah, because America and China are too much in bed together. It's not so much. It's it's well. It's both. I mean, it's that a little bit. But it's also economically a little bit, but it's more. I think just the sheer destructiveness of the weapons and the danger of escalation. And it's kind of not well, the Chinese way in some sense. I mean, they've always their, their policy is is to avoid military conflict at all costs, but pursue economic gains around the world. I mean, well, China, I, I guess yeah. you can only hope that that they still hold by the same view of themselves that you've talked about in their ancient history on this podcast before you said that they, you know, they consider themselves a balancing f- force to the West 
And so we, I guess we can only hope that they still see themselves that way because that's very much what they are. I think I think it's like mm-hmm. economically the world goes round on this specific spectrum because of the West and and the East. Yeah, you know, there's this, and it's like we kind of yeah, arguably we need it seems like we need both of them to keep doing what they're doing. You know, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Don't blow us up, China. That's what I'm well, saying. I mean, <laughs> that's listening. why. I mean, that's that's why the bigger challenge, really, than war is, I think, maybe climate change, because the incentive yeah. is to grow your economy and have this economic competition, which implies expansion of production, which is basically very polluting. So it's kind of eh, that's that, a good that's, point. That's yeah. more of a danger, actually, with this competition. It's just rampant climate change. But uh, you know. There's also hope on that front because China is making big strides and becoming a big electric company because they don't have natural reserves of oil. So even from a defense standpoint, the United States could blockade China and cut off all their oil. But if China becomes very electrified, um, electric cars and solar production for electricity, then they protect their economy actually from conflict with the United States. Right. Smart move for them. Well, uh, this has been a lovely chat about such a disgusting topic. Hope you found it interesting. I sure did. And uh, if you guys want to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Julian was here. Andrew is at Mars Raider. We do these episodes every Monday. Hope you guys have a great week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>